Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, we will talk about the results of the CBS News poll that shows Trump with an almost insurmountable lead in the GOP primary race for the Republican nomination for president. We'll also look at what is happening in Maui and how the president's visit affected the residents. A federal judge reinstates Alabama's ban on youth gender transition, and we will welcome South Carolina Senator Josh Kimbrell and North Carolina Senator Joyce Krawick for interviews this morning. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. then. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us for a live edition. If you're watching on YouTube or uh, Facebook, we appreciate that this morning. And if you are uh, listening to the podcast later on in the day, thanks for doing that as well. If you if you go and download the podcast, if you sign up for it, it's free. All you have to do is say follow, and you can follow me. The podcast will come to your smart device every day. And uh, that's a good thing to have some great information uh, and uh, hopefully some enjoyable conversation from a Christian worldview, from a biblical uh, worldview, I should say. Uh, Christian worldview, you know, there's a big discussion about those terms because Christian worldview, worldview can mean people who claim Christianity but don't, don't necessarily have a biblical worldview. So we try to talk about a biblical worldview because when we talk about the Bible, um, hopefully that's the definitive source and that kind of ends the debate. So what we try to do here is go to the source, go to God's Word when we have a disagreement about something or about the interpretation of something, and and talk about it from a biblical perspective. So um, anyway, if you're if you're downloading the podcast, please give me a good review. And if you're listening on Facebook and YouTube, just share the information because uh, the show's growing there, and um, I'm, I'm very encouraged by that. And it's grow- we are experiencing some growth on the podcasting side, but I really need to get um, more followers. I just need more people to know about the show. I think if they knew about it, um, they would follow, and um, that doesn't mean they will listen every day, but I think it would be one that they would choose from at least. All right, a couple of interviews coming up today. Senator Josh Kimbrell from South Carolina will join us in just a few minutes at 745. And then later this morning at 8 o'clock, Senator Joyce Krawick will join us from North Carolina uh, to talk about some of the things that have been happening there and how the North Carolina Gen- General Assembly has turned bright red and is able to override vetoes coming from the Democrat governor. So that's going to be a, a, a great conversation. I hope you'll be around for that. This morning, I'm going to have to duck out a little bit early as soon as we finish the interview with Senator Krawick because I've got to go to Columbia today. Uh, There's a Christian Life and Public Affairs Committee meeting, and that's part of the South Carolina Baptist Convention. And that's part of my responsibility as Director of Public Policy for the convention. I also serve as Senior Director of Church and Community Engagement and Public Affairs for North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference. It's not too late to get in line to come to North Greenville Uh, For the spring semester, you can go ahead and uh, begin thinking about joining us in January for the spring semester if you 
are still thinking about going to college this year, North or the university, North Greenville University um, is a great choice. Uh, we are excited about the Donnan Project right now. Our College of Business and Entrepreneurship is, uh, I think we've got like 460, 480 majors, something like that. Um, and we're building a building that is going to house the COBE, College of Business and Entrepreneurship, the state-of-the-art classes um, and some faculty and um, upper executive leadership offices are going to be in that building, but also it's going to be a, a, a new place that students can just go and hang out. There's going to be plenty of space for that. So it's a multi-purpose building. It's the center of campus, and we should occupy the building sometime before the end of the year. Uh, current estimates are anywhere toward end of November, 1st of December, we should be in there. Took a tour of it yesterday with um, Representative William Timmons, who came to campus just to to see the building and and talk to us about, uh, give us updates about things going on in Washington. And uh, it, it was a great conversation, and we really we enjoyed having the rep, uh, Representative Timmons on campus um, to take a look at the Donham Building and to um, so he can know kind of the things that we're working on to to turn out students who are going to be. Um, involved in the corporate world and in the business world in a positive way with a biblical worldview, uh, which would be very different than a lot of the way that the business community and the corporate world is is going today. Um, there, there are plenty of fine business leaders, don't get me wrong, but we need more of them. And we, need, we certainly need more corporate leaders who are less woke and more concerned with the truth and helping others and using their business for philanthropic causes, as well as providing for employees in a way that gives them a, a, a great living. So turning out Christian business leaders um, who will be leaders for the church and society is what we're about at North Greenville, and we're excited about it. All right, let's talk a little bit about Maui, because Mau Maui is still a mess. Uh, we need to remember to pray for the people of Maui. They are um, you can imagine the grief that they're going through. Uh, there's a lot of anger right now in Maui, and the anger and frustration is primarily being directed at the government because the perception is that the government was not prepared for this fire, and you, the death toll now, as of this morning, has crossed 114 people who we, we know passed away in the fire. 850 people are still missing, and that's with 85% of the rubble being searched by teams with cadaver dogs. So a lot of the researchers now are saying that it's likely that a majority of the missing will never be recovered uh, simply because of the intensity of the heat from the fire, that there, there are not going to be any remains to be found. And a lot of the missing are children. And that is ultimately frustrating, obviously, heartbreaking um, and frustrating for local rev residents who are angry uh, that government officials have been unable or unwilling to provide more information about those who are missing. Now, I think it's more unable than it is unwilling. I'm aware of con some conspiracy theories that are out there saying that the government set this fire because they've been wanting to get this high-dollar land um, and to develop it, and the local residents, the people who own the land, won't sell and so the only way they could get the land was to start this fire, burn everybody out, uh, make them destitute, and then they would be forced to sell to the government. Um, I, I don't believe that. I, I think these conspiracy theories, all they do is, is hurt us. They, they uh, cause us to have 
anger. There's no evidence. There's no, um, and people point to the lack of the sirens. There were a lot of things that the government didn't do well, but I don't think that that points to the fact that the government decided to burn these people out for their own means. Um, it, it looks more like typical government incompetence. It looks more like typical progressive mindsets as they approach government uh, rather than caring first for the people involved. Uh, they seem to be more concerned with meeting climate change goals than they were in listening to experts who were talking about the likelihood of a wildfire breaking out because of of the indigenous grass that's taken over the sugarcane fields that used to be very profitable for the residents of Maui, but have been abandoned. And so it, 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 when you look at the evidence in total, it doesn't look like conspiracy. It lo- and there's not a conspiracy behind every tragic event. Uh, it, it's disturbing to me that we've become, as a people, so willing to just comp- to, to dive into conspiracy theories and to try to find things that um, the government is doing to us because of our lack of trust of government. Look, I, I think there's a reason that we should not trust the government right now about a lot of things, but I don't think it's because that the government is out to kill people in order to get land. I, I think it's because the government has become more focused on an ideology that is is hurting them because they're not facing the facts about what's happening in their own area, as we said, with the proliferation of the grass that was highly flammable, um, with a decision that was made about the siren system uh, that's dubious. Uh, the guy who made that decision we're going to talk about in a few minutes has resigned, citing health reasons. But the attorney general says that there's going to be an investigation into it, and so we'll see. But a lot of this anger of the residents kind of boiled over this weekend. And here's an example of how the conversation went when the mayor of Maui didn't have any answers for the people. Eight children are missing. You know. I knew the answer to that. I would be happy to answer that. You have no estimate as to how many children are missing? I guess we can end this right now. This is one of the biggest questions that the people of Lahaina have. You don't want to answer. You're a disaster. You've been the worst mayor we could possibly imagine. Yeah, disaster. The worst mayor we could possibly imagine. I mean, this is the kind of thing... That's come the, the the level of frustration that people have in Maui. The anger and frustration has risen in recent days over the fact that the sirens, which we talked about a minute ago, were supposed to warn residents about the fire, but they were never engaged. It was initially believed that they were damaged by the fire, but now it looks like that that decision was made by someone named Herman India, uh, the county emergency management chief who has sole control over the island's alarm system. And he made the decision to not sound the alarm because he said that the people had been trained to go to certain locations when the fire, when, when they heard the alarm, and that if he had sounded the alarm, there'd have been more casualties, more people dead, because they would have gone toward the fire, not away from the fire. And he says he doesn't regret his decision. But eventually, I mean, he was forced to resign because the people just absolutely are not accepting his explanation. And so <laughs> it's, it's causing quite, quite a mess. Um, the, like I said, the attorney general says there's going to be an investigation into the decision and also into the state of emergency preparedness by the government. Again, 
if, when you want to talk about conspiracy theories, I, I just don't think you have to get to conspiracy to be able to say that the government was operating incompetently. Um, and, and that was one of the main reasons that we had such a disaster. As it turned out, the government issued a guide for what to do in the event of an emergency, but wildfires were not included in the guide. Now, that's strange considering the fact that the government's been warned for several, several years that conditions on the island were worsening regarding the possibility of a catastrophic fire. Um, and so, it, you know, this, look, in disasters like this, there's always a high level of frustration because people have lost everything. And many people that were fine three weeks ago are now homeless and don't know what the future holds. And what they're hearing from the federal government is that they're going to get $700 a piece. And a lot of people are having trouble to square that when we're sending billions of dollars to Ukraine. And I, I get the, the contrast there. I mean, you know, you've got people in the United States. It, it, to me, it's not a matter of whether we should be in Ukraine. That's a whole separate debate. And whether there's an off-ramp and whether the Ukrainian counteroffensive is, is making any ground and whether we should be involved in it. But, but it's a legitimate question to say, and, and we'll have that debate another day. But right now, it's a legitimate question to say, why is so much money going overseas. If we have that kind of money, all right, if, if Ukraine has to be supported, then we shouldn't support Ukraine at the expense of supporting people here in this country. Now, there's not a direct correlation. I mean, I, I haven't seen one, a, a, a direct correlation between the amount of money that's going to Hawaii and the amount of money that's going to, to Ukraine in terms of, in terms of anybody saying, well, we're sending all this money over there, so we can't send money to Hawaii. But people see that, and that's what they're going to think because they hear of all the reports of billions of dollars, over several hundred billion dollars going to Ukraine and $700 per resident so far. Uh, now, there's promises by the president to rebuild Lahana, and uh, the people are hopeful for that, but they're very suspicious. And, and President Biden yesterday, he's not helping himself. Uh, because yesterday, uh, when he was in, he and the first lady were in Hawaii, and he told the story about to people now who had lost everything in order to try to identify with them. He exaggerated a story about a fire that happened at his house, and, and I mean, and this is this happened back in two thousand four. Um, I will. I tell you what, we'll get to that after we talk to Senator Kimbrell, because we have him on the phone. I wanted him to call at uh, 745, and that's exactly what he's done. Good morning, Senator. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Doctor. Good to be with you. Always a pleasure. Um, I, I hope you're having a good summer. I mean, have you been able to take a little bit of time off this summer? Because uh, since the legislature has been, been the, No, this has been the, honestly true. It's probably been the busiest summer uh, I can ever remember. So we haven't done a whole lot. I'm hoping to do something on Labor Day, maybe. Well, I hope so. I hope you get to do that. You got a, you've got a beautiful family, and uh, I hope you get to spend some time with them before we get back into the teeth of getting ready for next year in the legislative session. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. I, I, how, I, as you reflect on what was accomplished in the last session, um, name a couple of things that you were really pleased about, that you were excited to see come across and uh, get the governor to sign into law from the last session. 
Well, I was happy, obviously, that we did something to enhance penalties for fentanyl traffickers. I mean, that to me was a big accomplishment because we have uh, thinking about kids going back to school right now. The uh, fentanyl epidemic is something that's no joke. It's very serious. The Chinese have manufactured this drug. It's pouring across an open border. And we feel like in South Carolina, because we're thousands of miles from McAllen, Texas, maybe it doesn't affect us, but it does. And we've got we've lost a lot of young people. I've met with a lot of families who lost their children in junior high school and high school because of this epidemic. And we're trying to crack down. I think that was a big accomplishment. Obviously, I believe that what we did on the heartbeat bill is a huge accomplishment, assuming the court ends up doing the right thing in the end. I, uh, I can't, I, my optimism and excitement about that is still muted until we get a final verdict. I do believe we did the right thing and I hope that it's upheld. And, and ultimately we took serious steps toward accountability in public schools. You know, again, as we're going back to school right, right now, people are back kids back in the school houses. We took a strong stance against inappropriate materials, including critical race theory. We took a strong stand against pornographic materials in the hands of kids in public schools, and we're going to hold these uh, schools accountable to that. So those are some really big accomplishments I was happy about, and uh, I just hope they stick and have effect this year, and I hope when we go into 2024, we build upon it. What are your priorities for 2024? As you look ahead, what do you think, uh, what would you like to see happen in the next legislative session as as a priority well there's three that i really care about i guess to be a good baptist you gotta have a three-point sermon right so the three that i would say i really want is it's 2024 you know it's an election year it's time to focus on priorities i hope we can pass another round of tax cuts and we passed a two billion dollar tax cut last year and uh, that was something i really promised i would push when i got elected in 2020 and we were able to accomplish that thanks to a couple of us coming together, Senator Harvey Peeler, chairman of finance committee, and I worked closely together on that and delivered the largest tax cut in history of state. I'd like to build upon it next year and cut them again. We have the room to do it as long as the economy doesn't go into some kind of crazy recession we, we can't really anticipate yet. But right now, South Carolina has been had, uh, economically pretty blessed. I'd like to see us cut taxes again. I also want to see us pass tort reform. we got to do something to a lot of businesses are having a hard time staying in business because of insurance premiums. And that's largely driven by the fact that we've allowed a, a lawsuit happy culture in our state to where we have runaway verdicts and uh, huge judgments for everything. And the courts are tied up with a bunch of frivolous lawsuits. And so we've got to do something on tort reform. we got a lot of people in the Senate who've joined the bill I'm one of the sponsors of. Uh, we're 23, I think, of us who've sponsored a bill to really reform joint and several liabilities. So I'd like to see us do that to bring down premiums to help small businesses, which ultimately help every consumer by cutting costs. And then finally, I'm really committed to making sure we pass this gender dysphoria bill. Senator Verd and I have worked very closely together to try to end this abuse of our kids, this notion that we're going to have doctors and hospitals performing a gender reassignment and hormone replacement therapy on kids as young as kindergarten is patently insane. And uh, we're going to end that. We, we, I think we're up to like 30 co-sponsors in the Senate, nearly or 28, something like that. And I want us to pass a bill to make it illegal in South Carolina for a minor to have a gender reassignment performed upon him or her, and then they're going to live to regret five, six years down the road. Well, and here's a piece of encouraging news. I don't know if you saw that this morning, but uh, yesterday a federal circuit court reinstated Alabama's ban on gender, uh, gender transition procedures and hormone therapy for children. They ruled that the judge's decision to block the ban was inappropriate. And there's a lot more to that story, but the bottom line is, is the courts initially stepping in had put stays on uh, Tennessee, Alabama, um, other states that have been leading the way on this. 
And uh, and now this is good news that the circuit, circuit court has weighed in and said, no, this is absolutely constitutional and Alabama can go ahead with enforcing the law. No, I think that's encouraging. I think ultimately when it goes to U.S. Supreme Court, there is no constitutional right to abuse kids. Right. I mean, let's be serious. This, this idea of these people on the crazy left wingers who are saying, well, gosh, you've got to allow for this gender reassignment stuff to happen. It's a constitutional right. Where? Where, you know, the court even recognized they massively overstepped in 1973 by inventing uh, a constitutional right to an abortion on demand. And and I, I think that there was obviously nothing in the Constitution supporting that idea either. It, it'd be even a further leap to say that there's a constitutional right to gender reassignment on a minor. And I think you're going to see the court ultimately that goes to the Supreme Court of the United States, which I assume eventually it will, that that these state laws will be upheld. Look, it's in these... We have laws on the books for if you're under 18, you can't buy cigarettes, you can't vote, you can't join the military, you can't even take out a credit card, you can't drink an alcoholic beverage till you're 21, you can't rent a car till you're 25. The reason these things exist is because there are expectations that at certain younger ages that you're going to make, you could make a decision that irrevocably changes your life or alters it in a negative way, and we want to be sure that people have the tools and the experience in life to make decisions that they don't ultimately regret later. If we're going to say you can't be, can't buy cigarettes where you're 18 or buy a beer till you're 21, then who in the world thinks it's a good idea to say you can have hormone replacement therapy or have a sex change uh, ordered by your guidance counselor when you're seven or even 16? And uh, I think that's just well within the rights of what this country has largely always believed, that there are reasonable protections for minors, and we're going to build upon that. Yeah. Well, that sounds good. I, I Look, we, we need a law like this in South Carolina. We need to follow uh, the lead of some of these other states that have been out front, Tennessee, Alabama. Uh, we need to protect children here in this state. And I, I know you fought hard for that last time. And uh, I think I'm, I'm sure that you and Senator Verdon and others will get this done uh, in 2024. Let me ask you about judicial reform. I know that's a priority of the attorney general. He's been uh, traveling around doing some forums. He's been on this program talking about the need for judicial reform. Do you think that's going to rise uh, toward the top in the new session, or will it take longer than, a, than this session? Well, with respect to the attorney general, this was already popular before he got on the bandwagon. I don't mean that to be negative. It's no, no, that's welcome, true. Welcome, welcome. Welcome to the party, Mr. Attorney General. We've been advocating for this for years, and I've been on this since 2019 at least. Right. And a lot of us have been put. There's about four or five bills in the legislature right now that we've been pushing to do this. And so, yeah, there, that's a huge priority. Has been of mine for years. The reason I didn't name it in the top three just now is because it's been a multi-year project. Yeah. We have an openly uh, corrupt appointment process that I think is a problem. I don't like the idea of allowing a few select folks to pick a slate, and then the legislature has to vote upon that slate. And so the legislature both appoints and confirms these judges. I think it's a problem. I think it's a conflict of interest and a front to the separation of powers. So we're, there's, I've sponsored, I think, five bills now to reform it. I'll take about anything other than what we got right now. I, my personal preference would be to have a process where you have a governor's nomination and legislative confirmation. That's what the federal system does, what most states do. But I, I don't think we're going to get – to go from where we are right now with this Judicial Merit Selection Committee to that's a pretty large uh, leap. So it's going to have to right. be some incremental steps. And so at least for now, we're trying to reform the Judicial Merit Selection Committee to make it more representative of the population generally instead of just a few select folks. 
uh, have the legislature have a much broader range of people to pick from, have some kind of gubernatorial role in there too, where you have the governor involved in the process with checks and balances, right? Where there's a little more accountability. Yeah, I think uh, the Judicial Merit Selection Committee is constitutional, so we would have to have a constitutional amendment to get rid of it. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know that getting rid of it is the best thing, but it would be very difficult. So reforming it, we do have the ability to change the way that people are put on there, and I think that's the best path, uh, probably the path that will be taken coming that's, out of That's it. what's going to happen, and yeah. you're right. You're not wrong about that. You're right. It is the Judicial Merit Selection. It is in the state constitution. It would be very hard to get rid of it. And, and again, I don't know that we have to get rid of it. I think right. just reforming it is the right call. Right now you just have too many entrenched folks on there and very little input from the public or the broader legislature, which represents the public, and who's on that committee. There's got to be a change to that to where it's more representative. If it is, then I think it's fine. There's nothing wrong with having a committee vet the candidates before we put them in front of the entire legislature. I have no problem with that. As long as the legislature, the governor, and the people of the state have a say in who's on that judicial merit selection committee, and it's right. not just a few well-placed lawyers. Yeah, I think um, yeah, I think the Supreme Court decision on the heartbeat bill will either um, allow the enthusiasm for judicial reform to stay about where it is. I mean, if they come out and affirm uh, the heartbeat bill, uh, but then I think it, it's not going to be an impetus. It's not going to push the judicial reform forward. But if they were to strike it down. I think judicial reform is going to rise to the top pretty quickly. Um, so, and I'm, and of course, I hope. I think, I think that's a fair assessment. I don't. Yeah. I think they're going to uphold it, but I agree with you. If they too. were to strike it down, I think it would be. I think it would be a, a, a precipitating event. We got a couple of minutes. Uh, you you just recently got to do something really cool. Can you talk about? Can you talk about your skydiving expedition? Because I I was fascinated. <laughs> Yeah, I did get to go jump with the United States Army parachute team, the Golden Knights, up at Fort Bragg, which they, they call Fort Bragg Fort Liberty now. But I was up in uh, North Carolina last week, and uh, yeah, I got to go up to 12,500 feet and jump out of the back of an Army uh, wow. plane and free fall for about 6,000 feet and then pop a chute and land at the military base. So definitely exciting. I, I, it was, I fly planes, Tony, but I've not jumped out of one <laughs> until now. But yeah. the, the joke was, that I told him, I said, well, former President Bush, Bush 41, uh, yeah. first Bush, jumped with the Golden Knights a few times. And I said, well, you didn't kill President Bush. I assume you probably won't kill me. So uh, I, I jumped. Well, I, listen, I'm glad you got the opportunity to do that. I know it was it was incredible. Um, and uh, you got to do that with some of your colleagues as well. So anyway, listen, thank you, Senator. Uh, we're expecting a call from North Carolina here in just a minute. But I really appreciate the time that you gave us this morning. God bless you, and I hope you get to, to spend some time with your family over Labor Day. Well, God bless you, and thanks for all you do. We'll talk soon. Yes, sir. All right, that's Senator Josh Kimbrell. Um, he has, uh, of course, been in the legislature now, uh, has become uh, pretty much uh, a leader over in the Senate, one of the uh, leaders uh, who has been pushing hard for conservative legislation here in South Carolina. And so um, I appreciate him taking the time to talk to us this morning. Um, we've got uh, uh, Senator Krawick from North Carolina calling in here in just a minute, and so we'll hang on here and give her a chance to call. I don't want to get started necessarily on something else and then have her call in. In fact, right on time, here she is. Let me make sure I've got her in the right place. Good morning, Senator. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you. You know, it's been a long time since we've talked. Uh, I, I described you when I was uh, telling people you'd be coming on the show that we were all traveling buddies. 
because uh, we That's had a chance right. to go to Israel together way back in, the, I guess that was 2012. So it that's, was. that's been a while ago. And since then, you have really become active in politics in North Carolina, getting elected, uh, I think, first as a representative and then as a senator, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. So you were when were you elected to your Senate term? My Senate term, I was actually appointed in 20, I, I was in the House. Uh -huh. My In the House, I was actually appointed to fill a vacancy that was expiring, and it's a long story. But anyway, that right. was, I was an appointment in the House in 2012 after we came back from Israel. And then in 2013, I was appointed to the Senate and was reelected in 14 and beyond. So wow. I'm honored to be there. Well, let's talk a little bit about North Carolina because there are obviously some uh, similarities between North Carolina and South Carolina, and then there are some differences. Uh, obviously, South Carolina has a Republican governor. All of the constitutionally appointed offices are held by uh, a Republican, and we have supermajorities in the House and the Senate. But in North Carolina, you, you have a supermajority in the House and the Senate, and you have a Democrat governor. So you've been overriding some vetoes this summer. Talk about that a little bit. Exactly. You guys are so lucky in South Carolina to have a, have a Republican governor and, and majorities in both the House and the Senate. We um, were back in last Wednesday, and we overrode six of the governor's vetoes. Right. And uh, three of them were transgender bills, which obviously there's a lot of controversy surrounding that. Um, and then we passed a few other bills, and he has already vetoed some of those. So we will be going back next week and overriding some more vetoes. So um, wow. we can, he can keep them coming. We can keep overriding. And that's just a real blessing to be able to do it because we were not in that position last session. So this session, I'm really happy that we're able to do that. What are some of the bills that you overrode? I know one was on transgender surgery for minors. And that's something that right. we're working on here in South Carolina. We were not able to get that done in the last legislative session. There, there was a lot of debate, but we couldn't pass the bill. Uh, that's going to be something that I think we're going to come out of the gate pretty strong on uh, when the session begins in January. So how were you able to get that bill passed in South Carolina, uh, North Carolina, and what does it do? It actually forbids um, health care providers from surgically performing the uh, transgender surgeries on minors. It also um, also bans the use of the cross-sex hormones and the puberty blockers on minors. So even with parental consent, you will have to um, wait until you're 18 years old. We know that we, we don't have any idea what the long-term consequences of these treatments are going to be. Right. And I had a young woman who testified in my committee, and she's actually from my district, and she has already gone through menopause at 25. She went through the puberty blocker. She went through, um, uh, had her healthy breasts removed at 18, and uh, she is now detransitioned as much as she possibly can, but the long-term health um, consequences are with her for the rest of her life. And it's heartbreaking to listen. We had several stories like that during our hearings. And it's it's heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking. Well, you know, Europe sort of led the way on gender transitioning and for a number of years. And at the time that the United States decided to take that up, the Europeans began to back away because they have been doing right. this long enough to have some long-term studies 
that are peer reviewed right. that are demonstrating that this is a devastating thing, uh, and they're letting go of it. I, I was on a, a call last night. Um, I'm in something the Colson Fellows Program, and we were doing a seminar last night. Last night, and um, one of the speakers was telling us that he thinks it's going to be, let's say, three years to five years for the United States to run its course in all this transgender gender madness and, and finally, uh-huh. ultimately, back away. But the sad thing about that is the number of children that are going to be hurt in the meantime if we don't get bills like this passed across the country. That's exactly right. And, you know, we're big in the Republican Party on parental rights. So, uh, you know, we're getting blasted now that we're hypocrites, but there are many things many things that we don't allow children to do, even with parental consent. We don't even allow them in North Carolina. We don't even allow them to use tanning beds, even with parental consent, because of the dangers of it, that we know there are inherent dangers. We don't allow them to buy cigarettes or alcohol. or They're just a multitude of things when the safety of children are involved that the state does have a responsibility. And uh, I'm just happy that we were able to get that done. We also passed the um, Parental Bill of Rights. Um, we overrode that uh, last week also. And that uh, just says that you won't use child's pronouns without you contact their family if they ask to be identified by a different um, uh, transgender, if they are, you know, right. it's it, they just can't, you can't do that. With children, you can't do anything with children in schools. You can't give them a Tylenol, but yet you can discuss these transgender issues with them without notifying their parents. Right. Change, help them detransit, help them transition. In many places around the country, are doing that. So it's just nonsense. It's nonsense. So that was one of the bills that we overrode, and the third uh, transgender bill that we overrode was the Fairness in Women's Sports, which says trans women, which are biological males, are not allowed to compete against our girls and women in sports. Right. Well, and that was that's something that our legislature was able to do uh, a couple of years ago. But like I said, our transgender uh, prohibition on transgender surgery and puberty blockers and our parental consent bill here in South Carolina, it went to conference. Uh, I, I don't know what the outcome of that is going to be. Uh, they're going to have to come up with uh, a compromise by November, or we'll have to start again in January. And quite frankly, uh, the bill is not that great. I think it'd be better if it just goes away and we pass something that would really have some influence on parental rights uh, starting back in January. Um, right. So I, I, I'm just fascinated that the that the legislature, once you had a conservative majority, uh, actually a veto-proof majority in the House and the Senate, it seemed that the legislature in North Carolina was willing to move very quickly on these issues. Is that because right. the, the people in North Carolina are calling for this loud enough to influence the legislature, or did we ju- did you just get a good crop of conservatives coming into the government? Uh, I think it's both. Um, people are, um, all of these bills that I mentioned, the transgender bills, are all very popular among the the rank and file um, people in North Carolina. The polls show that it, they're just overwhelmingly people agree with those. Uh, even though we were warned that we were going to, it was another HB two. You remember our bathroom bill oh, we yeah. talked about? I do. And we lost billions of dollars, uh, according to Commerce, during that period of time. So, um, you know, they tried to. Um, 
frighten us with that uh, another HB2, but uh, thankfully we went ahead. And you're exactly right. It was very quick because we just got a veto-proof majority in the House a few months ago when a Democrat switched to a Republican. Right. So we did not come out of the election with veto-proof majorities. So as soon as we uh, did have a veto-proof proof majority, we were able to move. And our new member is um, is doing a great job under tremendous pressure. I can't imagine. So we're really proud to have her. Oh, yeah. The left is vicious. Yes. They are vicious. Well, let me ask you about uh, the abortion debate in North Carolina, because we were able in South Carolina to get a heartbeat bill passed. Uh, we don't know what our Supreme Court is going to do with it. We're hopeful. We have a new justice on the South Carolina Supreme Court that we believe will make the difference in upholding the heartbeat bill. But in North Carolina, you could only get to a 12-week ban. Was, what, what was the, the thinking about that? How did, how did you end up with 12 weeks? Well, we uh, let's just um, we do not have all of our members are not as conservative as I am. Right. And we had to um, we had to compromise. And we had a number of Republicans that had during their campaign had um, actually um, advertised and did commercials that they would not vote, would not support a heartbeat bill. So we had to backtrack and just um, um, get what we could get. Sure. You know, we just get do the best we could do to save as many babies as we possibly could. Well, and that, and that happens. And hopefully we are, exactly, hopefully we are going to come back and um, we put a lot of stuff. Our bill ended up being an omnibus bill with lots of stuff um, on foster care and adoption right. services and parental leave. And we just put a lot of really, really good things in there, um, hoping that we might get a few Democrats who really, uh, campaigned on those issues and wanted to um, see those become reality, but um, it, it didn't happen. Well, we it had the same thing as, in, in South Carolina. We passed the Human Life Protection Act overwhelmingly in the House. We had 83 votes out of 124. Uh, but when we got to the Senate, there were six senators who absolutely, and they were all Republicans, joined the Democrats to filibuster the Human Life Protection Act, which would have been, it would have protected life at about two weeks. Um, and we, we, could not, we could not get it through. And it looked like we weren't going to get anything passed. Uh, we actually had to go into overtime, have the governor call the legislators back into session uh, to get a heartbeat bill across the governor's desk. Uh, we're, we're thankful for that. But, and, and there's going to have to be, you know, to be honest, I was at a, a lunch yesterday uh, it's going to sound kind of funny. It was upstate Republican women's group, but they do have auxiliary members of which I am one. And uh, Senator Cash, who's one of our leading pro-life senators in South Carolina, was there talking about the fact that there's until we get a few Senate seats flipped, uh, there's not going to be any further. We can't go any further with protecting life in the womb. We've gone as far as we can go in the current political makeup and I think it's important for people to understand that legislators like you who support life and believe that life begins at conception cannot do this by themselves. It, it has to be the, the legislature. And you have to, you, you're faced with a choice of getting all or nothing. And if you, that's right. And, and if you get, if you don't get anything, uh, that's a disaster. 
And so I appreciate the fact. I I wish North Carolina could have gone farther, but I'm thankful Mm -hmm. that you were willing to go as far as as politically you could, and now you'll have the opportunity in 2024 maybe to see some more conservative members come in and, and go a little bit further. And exactly, and we we knew that we would get a, a you know a veto on that, so we knew we had to have the votes to override. So it wasn't just getting a majority to pass; it right. was that we had to have everybody on board because we we don't have any votes to spare. Um, and it was um, most there were a number of us wanted the heartbeat bill and fought very hard to get it. And we um, uh, formed a committee outside of the, our normal committee structure. Uh, a working group, I guess you might call it. And uh, we had some very heated debates during that time and everybody expressed themselves. And, but in the end we came up with the best bill that we could get to save the most babies that we could possibly save. And hopefully we'll be able to come back for more next time. Final question for you. I know you're following the presidential Republican primary and everything that's going Mm. on, uh, going on with that. Uh, we've got the first debate coming up tomorrow night. Uh, what do you expect out of this? I mean, President Trump is not going. He's going to be doing an interview, apparently, with Tucker Carlson that's going to be on X, formerly known as Twitter, um, that will <laughs> kind of compete with this. So uh, what, what do you think that um, any of the candidates that are going to be at the debate, is this going to be an opportunity for them to cut into the president's lead? I believe it absolutely will. Um I'm disappointed that President Trump's not going to be there because it would certainly be more interesting with him there, to say the least. It's always interesting to listen to him. But um, I do believe um, I've just been amazed by the um, support that has the turnaround for Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, I mean, he's like doubled his um, – I think he's like in – I can't remember now, but he's definitely moved up in the polling. He has. And uh, he's very impressive. He's very impressive. And um, Tim Scott is doing a great job. And yeah. I think it is an opportunity for, for somebody to really shine tomorrow night. Well, I think Tim Scott is obviously uh, very winsome. He's very persuasive. I think he'll have the, and they're going to be going after DeSantis tomorrow night. Uh, oh, they're, yeah. They're, and, and they're probably, I mean, one of the interesting things is that they're going to they're going to need to defend President Trump because he's at sixty two percent. I mean, you can't you can't attack a guy who's got sixty two percent, and unless you're Chris Christie, um, who uh-huh. has has no chance. He may be doing well in New, New Hampshire, but there's no way he's going to get the nomination. So no. you know it it and and so how do you handle that? I mean, I think it's going to be a uh, interesting. I, I really want to watch this debate because of, of some of the dyna- dynamics that are in play. And of course, I'm going to uh, watch Tucker Carlson's interview with Trump. I'm sure that'll be available um, at other times. So other than when the debate's going on. So we'll see what comes of it. Joyce, thank you so much. Senator, I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> um, That's perfectly really pre- fine. I, I am Joyce to you yeah. always, Tony. I appreciate that. And I appreciate <laughs> you being on the program this morning. God bless you, and we'll My be praying pleasure. for you. I'd like to check in with you when the session starts again. Uh, we'll Please kind of do. monitor what's we're going still on. In, we're still in session. Oh, that's right. I forgot. <laughs> I'm I'm talking about South Carolina we, here. You guys are still going. Do you know, we have we were in our one session. I can't even remember. Everything's running together now. But we went in session January of 22, and we didn't get out until this year, 
23 um, because we, we took breaks and we were doing skeletal sessions, but we have certain arcane rules here. When we're not in session, the governor can do some really ugly things. So we just stay in session all the time so that we can call ourselves back if he does something we're, we're not happy with. Well, so we, we never get a, a real break. <laughs> wow. Well, that is interesting. Uh, we're At least Thanks, we're Tony. out until January. Well, take care. We'll look forward to talking to Thank you Thank you very much. Thank you. I look forward to it as well. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye-bye. Well, that's all the time we've got today for uh, the program, because as I said, I've got to head out here to Columbia in a few minutes uh, for the Christian Life and Public Affairs Committee meeting. But uh, hey, in the morning, 7.30, hope you'll join us live again. We'll be talking about the debate tomorrow night, of course, and I'll finish up the story on President Biden's trip to Maui, uh, and we got plenty of other things tomorrow that we're going to be talking about. But uh, don't forget to download the podcast today. You'll find it at Spotify. You'll find it at Apple Podcasts or anywhere else they have podcasts. God bless you. Have a great day. God bless you.